Good morning, I'm Alicia. I'll be reading the text for this morning so you can follow along with your Bibles um, or you can open your apps up to 1 Corinthians uh, 14 uh, verses 1 through 25 or it'll be projected on the screens. It says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but if the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called out to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Thank you, Alicia. That was quite a... A mouthful. That was a, a lot of scripture, right? Uh, this morning, we're going to uh, continue in our series called Spillover. And uh, as was already read, we're going to actually uh, tackle somewhat of what could be considered a difficult text. And we're going to kind of demystify some things. And so I'm excited for that. I'm excited for uh, the process of going through, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, through, uh, this is going to get loud. So I'm going to actually 
Well, that was annoying. It'll be even more annoying for people that are listening on a podcast or watching on videocast. <laughs> Pause and watch Claude cough. Hallelujah. Um, we're, we're going through the series uh, that unpacks chapter 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you go all the way back to our launch, we began right in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. We're just moving through the book of Corinthians in different series. And so it's kind of cool as we continue our journey this morning. And I was thinking... Uh, in context, uh, like I said, kind of demystifying something uh, that has been perceived as maybe mystical. Um, I, I was reminded of, of an experience that I had growing up. I have two sisters. I have one older. I have one younger. Uh, my younger sister and I are actually closer in age. We're less than two years apart. And so we have kind of a close bond. Um, we, uh, we fight a lot. <laughs> no, uh, no we, we get along fine now, but when we were growing up, it was just constant at each other's throats, you know, but um, now we're actually uh, really good friends. And uh, when we were growing up, we decided that we would uh, create a language. Uh, it sounds ridiculous. I know unless you were young and had a younger, uh, uh, I mean, that you had a closer sibling, then you kind of know what I mean, because we wanted a way to, to make sure that our older sister knew that she simply did not belong. <laughs> and the best way we could do that was to create a language so that we could literally communicate in front of her and she would have no ability to understand what we were saying. And so uh, we created a, a language that we call Horsky Borsky. Uh, it's so ridiculous, things you think you'll never work into a sermon. Uh, but uh, we spent a good part of a day at my grandmother's house trying to come up with actual language and words for things just made out of nonsensical noise. And um, it did not pan out well. Uh, it didn't pan out at well at all. In fact, we realized that we were just saying things that made absolutely no sense. And so what we decided is that instead of just saying things that absolutely made no sense, uh, we would do that in front of other people and decide that we actually understood one another. Okay, so it's kind of this collective agreement that we would just ensure that other people knew they didn't belong. <laughs> specifically my older sister, who we told often uh, that she, um, you know, just did not belong. Although, depending on the day, I belonged with her and the younger one didn't belong. You know how that works, right? If you grow up in a family, it's like, now you're my best friend and we can't stand her. Um, I don't recall the times that I was left out. <laughs> I'm sure it never happened. Anyway. But that's why we have counselors. So, uh, no, just kidding. Uh, in either case, we, uh, we just would say absolutely nonsensical things, and we would decide that we knew what one another meant, and it was our way of feeling connected to each other. It was our way, more importantly, of making sure that others realized they didn't belong. It was a way for us to kind of come together. And so we knew something and no one else knew it. And so the question I want to ask you this morning as we start to move through the text is why do we love to be in the know? Why do we love to be in the know, on the inside track? Like know something that no one else knows. Um, you might say that you're not really wired that way, but I could say, hey, I, I have something uh, I want to tell you, but the room can't really know it. Could you, could you come up here and maybe I could just whisper to you like, oh, okay, I guess I'll want to know that. Uh, because there's something inside of us that loves this idea of exclusivity. This idea that as human beings, we are important. Christian or not, human being alone, when you're in the know, 
When you know something that others may not know, you feel important. You feel special. Like, hey, I know this, but I can't tell anyone. And if you're wired a certain way, you're like, I can't tell anyone except you, if you'll be my friend, right? Now, that's a whole other story. We want to feel like we're part of something greater than ourselves. We want to feel like we belong. In fact, some of us will even create exclusivity just to ensure that we don't get left out. And so we create opportunities for other people to feel connected to us to ensure that we're not the one that's kind of being cast aside. We'll even sacrifice the feelings of others in order to ensure our own sense of belonging at times. It's kind of the dark side of humanity. Um, We just strive to fit in so much that we'll even do it at the expense of others at times. Some of us will even tear down others in order to attempt to build ourselves up. It's just the truth, the raw, unfortunate truth. But here's the problem. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't actually make us feel better. It doesn't make us really feel like we belong. In fact, the more we try to exclude others, we increase in our fear that in fact we're being excluded. It's this cycle. Because being in the know doesn't lead to belonging. You see, we have a poor perspective. We talked about that a lot last week, this idea of perspective. We have a poor perspective, and so did the Corinthian Christians. We talked last week, uh, but Paul is addressing a root issue of exclusivity and being in the spiritual know. That's what he's talking about in this text. Talking about this idea that you're a part of something that not everyone else can be a part of. You're super spiritual. You know, if we put a pause on that just for a second, the opposite of tearing someone down is building someone up, right? That's the opposite. You, you tear someone down or you build someone up. In edifice, the word edifice, an edifice is a building, okay? And uh, a large building is referred to as an edifice. And so as such, an edifier is one who builds buildings. We don't use that language a lot in our society. So what do you do for a living? I'm an edifier. Really, what do you build? (laughs) Skyscrapers. Wow, that's quite the edifice. Um, (laughs) If you do speak that way, you're awesome. And I'd love to get to know you better. But in either case, um, the, the reality is we don't speak that way, but that's what those word means. To literally build up a house, to build up, to construct, means you are an edifier. There's a lot of building illustrations in scripture. In fact, we see that Jesus builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it is what is said in scripture. In fact, we see that Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone. He's referred to the cornerstone of a building that's being built in Christ followers, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, are like living stones built into a spiritual house. We're called to be edifiers building each other up. Isn't that interesting? The church of Corinth was not good at building each other up. And that's what Paul is addressing to them. And really what Paul is addressing to us today is are we individuals that build one another up? If we've seen in earlier chapters, um, they thought that having a spiritual prayer language called tongues was most important. 
That's what we've referred to in earlier chapters. There's, there's the, they're enamored. The Corinthian people are enamored by the way that they can speak in a heavenly language and as a result appear to be more spiritual than everyone else. It was kind of like this way of, uh, of hierarchy to be like, look how important I am. I say words I don't even know what they mean. I'm speaking to God. And as a result, they left people out. They distanced themselves from others. They created a sense of exclusivity. Their goal was to be a spiritual person in the know of spiritual things. And Paul says, that's not loving. And it doesn't build up. It's contrary to the truth of the gospel. And so in in verse one, it says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Prophesy, um, it means to speak the truth. And in the context of scripture, it means to speak the truth of scripture, to speak the word of God. And so speaking the word of God, speaking the gospel to one another, reveal Jesus to one another. That's what Paul is talking about. He says, listen, pursue love, pursue Christ, pursue God in all things, and, and also pursue the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy, especially that you may know the word of God so well that you can speak truth to people that are struggling with a lie that they're believing. A church that loves reveals Jesus. And as you reveal Jesus, you build people, you reach people. That's what Paul's talking about. He said, listen, you're not supposed to be exclusive. And so verse two through five It says this, it says, for one who speaks in a a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their building up and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, like I said, we're going to demystify some things. I'm going to do a little bit of teaching here, a little bit less kind of of preaching. I'm going to do some teaching, and so I'm going to lay some groundwork. And one of the things that I want to caution you against is to not use my illustration to an extreme and to assume that when I'm talking about praying in a prayer language that I'm talking about some fake made-up language that's nonsensical. I'm not using that example. I'm using the illustration to simply articulate that we want and pursue exclusivity. And so it was a perfect illustration, and yet it was also a dangerous one if you go too far in the context of what we're speaking about. So I want to demystify a prayer language referred to as tongues in Scripture and this idea of prophecy, all right? So the first thing is, who do they address? Tongues. Tongues addresses God. The language of prayer and praise So literally, people that are praying in tongues, people that are praying in the spirit, as it says in scripture, are praying to God. They're not God praying. Sometimes people say that that it's a, a way in which God is speaking to humanity, but that's not the truth in scripture. In scripture, it is us praying to God. 
it's us praying to God. It's a language of prayer and praise. The first occurrence of speaking in tongues happens actually in Acts chapter two, verse 11. It's called the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And so what's happening according to scripture in Acts, and I'll encourage you uh, to read it. I'll read part of it right now. Uh, Acts chapter two, verse 11, it says that uh, to give you a little bit of context, there's a group of people, they're Christ followers, they're insiders. They're, they're gathered in a room in agreement in one accord, as scripture says, and they're praying and they're seeking the Lord. And as they do, there's a mighty rushing wind and all of a sudden they begin to speak in tongues, according to scripture. And what they actually are speaking, according to verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So we have a group of Christians that are gathering, a group of Christ followers that are gathering, and as they lean in and they seek God's face, they begin to declare the mighty works of God, and people that are far from God overhear what's happening in this Christian gathering. They overhear it, and here's their reaction. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, this is verse 12 of Acts chapter 2, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking and said, they're filled with new wine, they're drunk, okay? So we have two reactions when people are praying in tongues, when people are praying in this spiritual language, we have two responses from people that are not in relationship with Christ. Their responses are, what does this mean? And they must be drunk, okay? It's looking real good for the church. <laughs> but something amazing happens because they're hearing the mighty works of God declared. What actually draws them to Christ is Peter gets up and he preaches, he speaks truth, and when he speaks truth, their hearts are laid bare. Thousands of people are added to the church that day because of the preaching of God's word. And so it's important that we understand that when people pray in tongues, they're declaring the mighty works of God, of his greatness and his beauty. It's us praying to God. It's intercession. It's Christ followers gathered together interceding and speaking of the mighty works of God. I'll talk more about it, but we're beginning here for us to understand that it's not God speaking. It's not God speaking, it's us speaking to God in a heavenly language or a groaning. What I say by demystifies, I used to get super scared about this part in scripture. Like growing up, I was like, oh, what in the world? And it's funny, I think there's a lot of tension. I think a lot of preachers don't talk about certain sections of scripture like this because it's like, what do you mean? I'm gonna speak in tongues? I think I saw that in a movie once. It's called Poltergeist and the head spun and there was peas flying everywhere and vomit. And I, I don't know, I don't like it, you know? And, and so when I was younger, I was super scared of like spirituality. Honestly, I was like, <laughs> what does this mean? Like, is God going to possess me? Is God going to make me do something I don't want to do against my will? And that's not what we see in scripture. We see people very clear-headed coming to the ends of what they can articulate with their own language. So Paul makes this distinction between praying with your mind and praying with your spirit. And what he's saying is when, when you're praying with your mind and you're praying with your mind, at some point you come to the end of your words and then your spirit begins to cry out and intercede. Sometimes it's in a, a heavenly language, but sometimes it's in groaning. Have you ever gotten to a place where you're just 
You've got no words and you're praying about a situation and you're so broken and you're so downtrodden and you're so hurt and you're just crying out like, God, if you're real and, and, and you've said everything you can say and then you just begin to groan. You know, we see that in scripture. We see it in the Old Testament. We see Hannah in front of Eli just moaning. She's come to the ends of the, of the words that she has because she's barren. She just wants a child more than anything. And Eli the priest walks in and sees her lips moving with no words coming out. And what does Eli the priest say? She must be drunk. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Why does everybody think everyone's intoxicated? <laughs> she looks, he looks at her and says, she must be drunk, but she's groaning. And she says to him, my spirit groans. My spirit cries out. That resonates with me. This idea that my spirit would cry out when I've come to the end of the words that I can articulate. And that the word of God says that we have control over the spiritual gifts we possess. There's, there's no like weird possession or anything like that. It's, it's interesting how we can talk about the, the, the spiritual gift of, of leadership, but then when we start talking about prophesying in tongues, we're like, uh, I'm a leader, <laughs> you know? but I want to demystify it because it's not as creepy as it may sound. And for some of you, maybe you don't think it's creepy at all and you'll just have to bear with me as I go on the journey trying to um, sort of go through a process of understanding. Prophecy. So we're going to unpack prophecy a little bit. We talked a little bit about tongues. We're going to talk about prophecy. This addresses people. So we have tongues that addresses God and then prophecy that addresses people to build them up or to console them is what Paul says. Prophecy is for the present, not the future. It's not the future. It's a different word, okay? So we're talking about prophecy in the context of revealing truth now. Not like, I'm going to come prophesy as a prophet. No. Revealing truth, and the truth is God's word. So someone that speaks prophetically is someone that is speaking the truth of God's word in the midst of a lie being told. So when you look at someone and you open up uh, the word of God and you say, listen, you think you're worthless, but the word of God says you're valuable. You're prophesying into their life according to God's word. When a Christian speaks truth over a lie that someone else is believing, you're being prophetic. Preaching, by definition, is prophetic. I'm revealing God's word. And so when I speak on a Sunday morning, I'm functioning prophetically. I'm speaking to people to build them up or console them. Not very mystical, right? Please don't refer to me as prophet. That would be creepy. <laughs> the second thing, the difference, so that's the first difference, okay? One addresses God, tongues addresses God's, prophecy addresses people. The second difference that we look at is what are the results, the results of both. Again, I said it's going to be a little teachy, bear with me. We'll connect the dots. Tongues. The person praying is built up. The result of praying in tongues is that the person themselves are personally edified. They're built up. So that when we come to the end of ourselves and we come to the end of our words, we begin to, our spirit begins to cry out, speaking the mighty works of God. And just saying, essentially you're saying, God, 
I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but I know that you are great. I know that you are mighty. I know that you are above all things and your spirit is literally crying out truth to God. And as a result, you personally are built up. Prophecy builds up the church corporately. So the results of prophetic is that others are built up, whether you individually are building up someone else by revealing the word of God or whether it's corporately in a setting. So prophecy builds up the church corporately. So in a group setting, it's clear that prophecy is more beneficial with one exception, unless you pray in tongues and interpret your prayer, knowing that it will edify the whole body. And when it's interpreted, it should be thanksgiving, declaring the glorious works of God corporately. It should be talking about what it is that God has done. And according to scripture, it should happen only in the context of other Christians. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2. And that's what we see throughout God's word, that when someone speaks corporately, it's often with other believers present. So we're talking about private versus public. When you are in private and you're just crying out to the Lord, there's no interpretation. Your spirit is just praying out the end of yourself. When you're publicly communicating, there are going to be people like, is that dude drunk? What's happening? And here's the thing that's interesting. Paul doesn't command that it happen. He doesn't command that it should happen. There's no, there's no imperative tense in it. So he's not saying that when you as Christians gather, one of you must speak in tongues and then someone must interpret. It doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, if you do that, you better interpret. And so one could even say that Paul is saying, listen, corporately, you better be cautious because of the ramifications of just kind of spouting off to look spiritual. In fact, it could appear exclusive. It could appear dangerous. It should be noted that verse five makes the distinction. It says, I want you all to speak in tongues makes the distinction this way, that all Christ followers have the capacity to come to the end of their words and that their spirit would begin to cry out, that they would pray in a prayer language, but that if you ever do publicly, you better be willing to interpret it or be corrected by a prophet that's going to reveal God's word, whether or not it's in line with it. Verse 13 as we move forward, it says this. I'm going to read verses 13 uh, through 19 and then move, uh, unpack it a little bit. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. I think that um, this is uh, pretty telling that the responsibility of the person that is actually speaking in tongues in corporate settings amongst other Christians bears the sole responsibility to interpret that which they have said. For I, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. In other words, it's not like this disengagement of possession, right? Where you're like, I'm saying words and I don't know why and I just can't stop. And Paul's like, no. Engage both your spirit and your mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, again, that's what it is. It's giving thanks. Giving thanks with your spirit. How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving 
when he does not know what you're saying. For if, sorry, for you may be giving thanks well enough. Again, because that's what it is, giving thanks. But the other person is not being built up. It's just for you. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. That's not a contradiction. He's saying, I I think that that I have the ability to to be able to just intercede on behalf of myself in private. I'm thankful for that. Nevertheless, verse 19, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others, prophecy, than 10,000 words in a tongue. It's interesting because when he says in church, uh, the Corinthian church, as he's directing it, is actually a house church. It's a house church where typically only Christ followers were welcome to come. They would reach the lost, and as the lost would come to know Christ, then they would reveal where their church is gathering, and they would gather in these homes. And so they were Christ followers. So what Paul is saying is even with all Christ followers together, I would much rather be revealing truth corporately in the context of prophesying than to speak words that no one else understands. He's talking about tongues because that was their issue. That was the thing they were struggling with. They were just kind of spouting off in this prayer language to look spiritual. But the timeless truth for us today, although this is applicable, obviously, is that our spiritual journey cannot be about us. That's what we have to take away from this. As much as there's instruction about order within church, and we'll get there even more, but as much as that happens here, the underlying root of the truth is that if your spiritual journey is just about you, you're not really on a spiritual journey. We must build others up. That's why he starts the whole thing by saying love. That's why it's placed right after this love chapter, this idea of revealing Christ. Above all else, are you revealing Christ? Or are you just gathering together to look spiritual? And you know what? If you're super spiritual, then you'll make it super clear to others that they don't belong. In fact, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, and then he quotes, this is Isaiah 28, verses 11 through 12. He's quoting Isaiah. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. It's an amazing reference that he's making there. He's talking about um, judgment. Isaiah is actually prophesying about the future, different. And as a prophet, he is speaking and saying, listen, Israel, if you don't turn from your ways, you will be overthrown. And the mark of God's judgment on you will be that you will hear a foreign language and the Syrians will come as they dominate you and you won't even understand what they're saying. And it will be a sign to you that you have been overthrown. So let's read on. Verse 22, thus signs, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will not say, I'm sorry, will they not say you are out of your minds? Paul is cautioning them about something that happened in their society. So let's talk about context a little bit. Again, a little teachy, we'll connect it. One of the things that would happen in that day 
is that when a city was overthrown, they would literally destroy everything, like demolish it, all right? So they would knock down all of the buildings, all of everything. There would just be maybe a footprint of what existed prior. And then they would literally build their city on top of the old city. You lose, we win, okay? And so they would knock down everything, they'd build everything right on top, and then they would say, uh, we're not gonna speak your language. In fact, we only speak our language, and now you're forced to learn our language. So when you hear someone speaking in a foreign language, it will be a sign to you that you have been overthrown. And so what Paul is doing here is he is connecting the culture and the context of the day, and he's connecting it with a prophecy that Isaiah said about the rebellion against God, and he's bringing it together. And he's saying, listen, you need to be cautious because if you come together just to appear spiritual, you may actually be revealing to people that they have been overthrown. They may actually respond fearfully. It will be a negative sign to the unbeliever. They're not going to sit back and be like, wow. These dudes, spiritual. <laughs> I think they're talking to God. I don't even know what they're saying. It's awesome. No, right? They're either going to be perplexed or think, are you drunk? <laughs> right? Or they're going to say, this is a sign to me that I don't belong. I don't belong here. We have to be cautious as much as the Corinthians were cautious, that we don't get to a place where we, and I'm speaking specifically to Christians right now in the room, I know that there's a mixture for sure, but to the Christians in the room, we have to make sure that we don't speak in such spiritual jargon that we communicate to others that we work with, to others that even come into this space, hey, you don't belong. We have to be cautious of the words we use. I, I get so annoyed when, um, when people will come together and it's like a mixed group and they're like, hey, how's it going? Hey, blessed. I'm blessed, brother. You know what? That old sleuth foot, he's coming for me, but <laughs> the presence of God, am I right? Provision cometh to those that are faithful, am I right? I'm like, wow, you are weird. And we all think so, right? But we're, we're victim of, and I use an extreme example because I don't want to like step on toes and I don't want you to be cautious. Like, oh, Pastor Claude made fun of what I said. If you said old sleuth foot, you're like from 1960 <laughs> and you're awesome because no one refers to Satan that way. For those of you that are like, what's a sleuth foot? <laughs> the point is, if, when we get together, we still do things like this. We still create environments where we're like, aren't we spiritual? And all we're conveying to others is that maybe they don't belong, that they have to get to a place of spiritualness before they can be accepted here. I'm thankful that we don't function that way, that in our infancy as a church still on a lot of levels, we're creating a culture that says, hey, you know what? This is a place for imperfect people to come together and just say, I'm kind of a hot mess too. Because that's what Paul intended the church to be because that's what Christ intended the church to be, a group of imperfect people coming together and saying, let's learn to love better. Let's learn to, to reorient our lives together. Let's speak truth to one another. Let's prophesy to one another by revealing truth in the midst of believing a lie, that we could build one another up, that we could link arms and do life together. And so verse 24 says this, but if all prophesy... 
and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted. I'm sorry. Yes, he is convicted by all. Convicted. This word actually means seized their conscience. What he's saying is, if we all commit to speaking the truth of God's word, when people come, they won't think I don't belong. These people are too spiritual. (laughs) Instead, their conscience will be seized. They'll all of a sudden realize, like, these people actually believe what they're proclaiming. They're confronting me about the lies I believe about myself, and I'm learning to replace them with truth. He goes on and he says, he is called to account by all. This sounds kind of scary, and I'm sure people abuse this text. This probably conjures up images of groups of people getting in circles and shaming other people or whatever. That's not what Paul means. That's not what he's saying. He means this. He means that the unbeliever will realize that they are in good company because we are all sinners saved by grace. He is called to account by all. He's called to account by the brokenness of all of us. And verse 25 says the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is real among you. If we commit to speaking truth, it's the love of God. It's, it's who God is that, that if we lean in to, to the prophetic, to the speaking of God's word, and I'm hesitant to even say prophetic because it sounds mystical and creepy, but I think I've defined it enough to say when we reveal the truth of God's word and we commit ourselves to not spiritual activity, but the authenticity, the authenticity of presenting the truth of the gospel in the midst of our own broken lives, that it literally causes the secrets of people's hearts to be disclosed, not publicly, but within themselves. They fall on their face and worship God and declare he is real among you. Oh God, would that be, would we not be a church that's just focused on the spiritual, that's just focused on the supernatural or enamored by who God is, but instead be wrecked by the truth of the gospel that Jesus laid down his life, that he lived the perfect life we could never live, that he paid the price for our sins. And that as a result, we can walk in that freedom, not because of what we've done or how hard we've tried or because of how spiritual we act, but in spite of all of that, be saved. We'd be set free from ourselves, from the lies that we speak to ourselves, the lies that others speak into us. And Jesus will continue to build his house, his house. You see, our perspective is off. We focus on exclusivity in pursuit of belonging, in pursuit of meaning, We may even marginalize ourselves and accidentally marginalize others. But the gospel is inclusive. The gospel says that that all may know. And so I want to ask you to consider something this morning. We'll often say that the text requires something from us. So what I want to ask you is this. Where in my life do I need to trust God's perspective? If our perspective is off here, where is it in your life that you need to trust God's perspective? I want you to leave this place this morning 
talking about that, considering it, maybe even journaling about it. Like at what point did church become about spirituality? At what point did church just become a place that, that we gather because, hey, we're believers and we feel better about ourselves when we all get together and act spiritual? I don't think that that's anyone in the room. I honestly don't. I'm not um, correcting you or anything. I'm, I'm simply saying we have to be cautious of the reality that we can pervert the intention of broken people gathering to find God's love. And instead, we can turn it into a spiritual gathering where people come and say, oh, I could never be that spiritual. We will war against that. Our lead team will war against church as usual, church as typical, and spirituality. And I think we've created a culture where people can come and have their heart disclosed, fall on their face, and cry out to God. So this morning, maybe the perspective, God's perspective for you is, is surrendering your life to him. Maybe your application this morning to the text is to say, listen, I've, I've pursued spirituality rather than Jesus. And I want to surrender my life to Jesus this morning. If that's you, it's as simple as a prayer. You can pray a prayer saying, Lord, would you forgive me? I accept what you've done on, my, on the cross for me. Forgive me of my sins. Come and be the leader, Lord of my life. It can be that easy. If you make that decision or have made that decision recently, I'd love to have a conversation with you after about what the next steps look like. But for others of us in this room, what does it look like to trust God's perspective? Maybe it means deciding to speak the truth in love to others, to build them up. I want to build others up. I want to be a part of what God is doing in the lives of others. I want to identify people that are, that are shackled by lies, and I want to reveal truth so that God can set them free, so that they can see themselves the way God sees them. For others of you still, maybe, maybe it means a prayer retreat. In the busyness of life, the idea that you don't create margin for your spirit to just cry out to God that you're so busy with trite prayers. Lord, bless this food to our bodies. God, don't let me die. Lord, I thank you for a good day. Amen. You're like, whoa, you pray three times a day? <laughs> for others of us, it's, it's about saying, I need God's perspective, and the only way I get it is if I create margin so that I can be in proximity to God. That it's not just on Sunday mornings. I have a spiritual fix that it's part of the rhythm of my life. Allow God to build you up. What is God asking you to do? I don't know. I don't pretend to know because I'm not God. But I know that the text requires something from us and I know that the God of heaven wants to have a real authentic encounter with you. So I don't know what that looks like for you this morning but I want to provide the opportunity for you to respond. And so if you would just bow your heads and, and close your eyes this morning, if you want, you can keep your eyes open. The, the band is going to come up to, to sing some songs and we'll have opportunity to join them in response. So our goal this morning is to respond to whatever it is that God is asking you to do, whatever the application may look like for you personally.
Maybe it means pulling your phone out and scheduling a prayer retreat, like I said, or just some margin. So you know what? Maybe I can take five minutes a day to engage God. A minute a day. I don't know. But I know there's something. And I know that if you think there's nothing, then the something is that you have to stop being so religious. Because religious people think they've got it all figured out. And it's the worst pharisaical trap you can fall into. We all need God's word to just open our hearts, to reveal the broken areas. So I'm gonna pray a prayer and then if you wanna remain seated, you, you certainly can if that's what you want for response is to just engage God that way silently or like I said, you can take notes or whatever it is that you feel the Lord's leading you to do, but I'm gonna just agree with us today. Pray together. Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to have an encounter with you. Lord, that you're not distant and that we can have a sense of belonging here, that we can have a sense that we were made for something greater and that as we pray about the mission and the vision and we pursue what it is that we as Centerway are called to do, that that it's not uh, one person with a vision, but it's a team of people that you are building to do something greater than any one individual in this room, that we can declare we're a part of something bigger than any one of us, that you would stretch us, that you'd challenge us, that you'd call us to the greatness that you've instilled within us, that we would never settle for a lesser ripped off version of our one and only life. And so we take pause and we respond this morning. We declare your mighty works and we worship you together.